Welcome to the Outlines podcast. I'm your host, Jess Carter, and on today's episode, I thought I'd start by welcoming any new listeners and talking about some projects that are in the pipeline. First off, I'd like to shout out to Paul of the True Crime Enthusiast. If you haven't listened to Paul's podcast, I highly recommend checking it out, and I'll leave all his details in the episode description. Like me, he covers lesser-known cases in the United Kingdom, though his are both solved and unsolved, and he does so with meticulous research, an eye for detail, and well-structured, well-presented shows. I highly recommend that you have a listen, and I'm excited to tell you that we're hoping to collaborate on a case very soon, and I'll keep you updated with details. Second, I'd like to announce that there will be a longer gap between this episode and the next, while I work on my coverage of the final case in season one. It will span a few episodes, and I'm hoping to bring the first one to you on the 23rd of February. This is a case which it would be impossible not to fall deeply into, and I've gone right down the rabbit hole. I hope you'll join me at the end of February to give this case the exposure it needs. For now, though, Let's get started and delve into the brutal murder of Kay O'Connor. And just a warning, this episode contains descriptions of crime scenes that some may find disturbing, so listener discretion is advised. WPC, she walked up and down the road because she got a similar dis- um, description to the deceased, you know, from, you know, Kay O'Connor. Mm. And tell me what you can remember about the house. Well, well I know, I'm going in there, it was night time, and of course I remember, you know, that there was blood on, on, on the floor, you know, where the offence had taken place. You're listening to the voice of retired Colchester police officer John Bayliss. An act of serendipity led me to John, mid-January in Colchester Library, where we were both struggling with the ancient and neglected microfilm viewers. He's in his 80s. He retired in 1990, and for years he's been researching his ancestry, twice a week in the records section of the library. It's a bright, clear and cold Tuesday morning, and I've travelled into Colchester to research the 44-year-old murder of 37-year-old Kay O'Connor. John is just about to leave when he notices the headline on my microfilm screen. It reads, Murder, Doorstep Hunt for Killer, and next to that, The Walk to Violent Death. He asks me, Is that Kay O'Connor? There's a small picture of her to the left-hand side of the article. We get talking. He didn't work on her case and doesn't remember anything else, but he did take the night shift on Friday, March the 1st, 1974. He and another officer were tasked with guarding the kitchen of her home at 8 Wickham Road, Colchester. 
the place where she was killed. He says there was blood everywhere. I picture him and the other officer at the scene of the crime, in a kitchen light, the back door window smashed outwards, blood pooled on the floor. John bids me goodbye, and buoyed, I return to my research. Underneath that headline, The Walk to Violent Death, is a map. It's the route that Kay O'Connor walked the day she was murdered. I Google the location and decide to head over there myself to trace Kay's last steps. Whilst we celebrated the start of another year, the lights were going out all over Britain. The oil crisis just added fuel to the coal crisis and gave us the three-day week. Before I talk about Kay's case and walk you through the timeline of events, I want to contextualise her murder within Britain's political landscape in the early months of 1974. Throughout the mid-1970s, inflation rates were high and the government tackled the issue by capping public sector pay rises. This cap angered the unions who saw workers' wages fall while prices continued to rise. While miners withheld from striking until late January 1974, from October of 73, they were subject to an overtime ban aimed at halving coal production. This was an unpopular ban, and as winter continued, electricity resources waned, and on January 1st, 1974, the then Conservative government implemented a three-day working week for any business which was not classified as essential. On February 5th, miners officially began their strike, and two days later, a general election was called and held on the 28th of the same month. The result was a hung parliament, but the Labour Party took power as a minority government, and by the 8th of March, the normal working week was resumed. For Kay O'Connor, this would come one week too late. Kay worked as a shorthand typist at local clothing factory Hyams, and so was subject to the three-day week. It was for this reason that she would be home alone on the afternoon of Friday the 1st of March. That day, her husband Tony, a member of a road-laying gang, had left in the early hours of the morning from their home on Wickham Road. Sometimes, when the weather was bad, Tony would be home just after lunch. But not that day. That day he returned at around ten past five to be greeted by police cars. I thought it was a bomb scare or evacuation because of the gas, he said. Colchester is a garrison town and in 1974 it was home to thousands of soldiers. Wickham Road is very close to where the barracks were then situated and a bomb scare in the time of the IRA must have seemed like a very real threat to Colchester's residents. That day, though, Tony exited his van to find himself taken by the arm by an officer. They led him away, and it was then that they told him the sad news. He would later say, I just couldn't imagine anybody doing it. It's as simple as that. The evening of Thursday the 28th of February, Tony and Kay had browsed holiday brochures and settled on a trip to Mallorca in July. Their fifth wedding anniversary would have fallen in April, 
and Tony says they were very much in love. They'd met while Kay was working as a barmaid in the Salisbury Hotel on Butt Road, situated almost parallel to the home where the couple would settle into married life. It was Kay's second marriage, and Tony felt like life was good for them both. If I left a shirt out, it would be washed. If there was anything I wanted doing, it would be done. The same was true for Kay's mother, who lived just two doors down and was accessible through a small alleyway, which locals called Short Wickham. This alley linked the backs of all of the houses along the terrace and gave access to Wickham Road. If you had been standing on Wickham Road on Friday the 1st of March 1974 at around 12.30pm, you may have seen Kay, and maybe someone did see her as she left her mother's house at 4 Wickham Road to run some errands. She was wearing a three-quarter length brown coat, a navy blue cardigan and a coloured headscarf. On her legs were blue flared trousers over brown suede boots. She walked the short route to a newsagent's on nearby Alexandra Road. It takes no longer than five minutes and include a map of her route on the Outlines website if you're interested in retracing her steps. She returned to number four Wickham Road at around 1.20pm or a few minutes after but realised she'd forgotten to collect her mother's pension and at 2.30 she left the house for what would be the final time. She walked down Butt Road to the sub-post office, only three minutes away, collected the pension and spoke briefly to the manager Peter Farrington and his assistant, Francesca Foote. Mr Farrington remembers her coming in. The young lady drew her pension, but I couldn't pinpoint the time. She was always pleasant, with a good smile. It's thought that then she walked the return journey, another three minutes, and headed straight home. Then, there is a gap in the timeline, until around 4.10pm, when her neighbour, Mrs Julia Rowe, heard strange noises coming from next door, and went around to Kay's back door to investigate. The door was open, and one of its windows was smashed. She looked inside, and it was there that she discovered Kay's body, lying on the kitchen floor in a pool of blood. She had sustained a large number of serious facial and bodily injuries and had been punched, kicked and stabbed, though at the inquest her cause of death would be given as compression of the neck. Laying close to her body was a bloodstained knife and there were more stains in the bathroom next to the kitchen. It is unclear if a sexual assault took place, but some of Kay's clothing had been ripped from her body. When, on that cold, clear day in mid-January, I walked Kay's last route, I'm taken with how much the area has changed. I record a few voice notes, starting my journey at number four Wickham Road and walking down Butt Road on the left-hand side to where the post office once stood. Nowadays, all of the barrack buildings opposite are in the process of being converted into housing or knocked down completely. A high red brick wall separates them from the busy road, and there are few reminders of the buildings that stood before. The Salisbury pub, where she once worked, is long gone, and flats stand in its place. The sub-post office is housing now too. Twin porches painted a dirty mint colour, and next door is a pub 
the fat cat. I turn around, and sticking on the same side of the street, I pass a sex shop, the adult emporium, and head back the way I've just come. The whole journey takes no more than ten minutes at a slow pace. When I return, I stand and face the house where Kay was killed. It's an innocuous-looking place. A terrace of red brick houses. The door to number eight is dark brown, and I see that someone has recently cleared ivy away from the brick. The road is peaceful. Half the houses, including Kay's, have been modernised with new plastic windows, and the other half are white wood. The house where her mother lived is for rent, and I imagine the people who may move in, how they will not know the story of Kay's murder. I wonder how they'll think of Short Wickham, that alley which lies alongside the house and still allows access to people's back doors. I wonder if it will worry them at all, or if maybe I just read too much true crime. In 1974, Tony and Kay were two of the youngest residents on the street. It was seen as a safe neighbourhood, filled with retirees. One of their neighbours, ex-policeman Edward Binge, said, We just knew her as a neighbour. She was a pleasant girl to speak to over the fence. And Mrs Charlotte Evershade added, I don't think anyone knew her all that well. Julia Rowe, the unlucky woman who discovered Kay's body, had a chain fitted on the Monday after the attack. After the murder, the people of Wickham Road locked their doors. It was a week after Kay's murder that police staged a reconstruction of her last journey. WPC Josephine Beswick, who John Bayliss said bore a resemblance to Kay, dressed in an approximation of her clothing and took just under 30 minutes to reenact that last walk. Directly after the murder, police were hesitant to disclose detailed information about the nature of Kay's attack. They deliberately avoided being explicit about aspects of the crime in case a nut confessed. At the time, they had only theories as to what had happened that afternoon. That Kay had been stalked as she'd walked home. That she'd discovered a burglar. They had no real idea who had committed the act, but they did have someone they wanted to trace. Following Josephine, as she reenacted Kay's last known movements, was a police car with a loudspeaker, which broadcast information about a man seen near the area at the time of the murder. They appealed for anyone with information to come forward, and later that evening repeated the same appeal at half-time during Colchester United's Friday night match at Lair Road. So who was this man they wished to trace? It's actually tricky to know if there was one person that they could not eliminate, or two. At the time, police released a photo fit and a separate artist's impression of what appeared to be two different people. But Detective Chief Inspector Derek Wyatt head of the Colchester CID, was quoted as saying, It is necessary to identify and trace this man for elimination purposes only, and it must be emphasised that the man to whom these descriptions refer is not necessarily the person responsible for the murder or in any way connected with it. The Essex County Standard reported that the artist's impression was of a man, about 30 years old, of medium build, and five feet six or seven inches tall. 
He had light brown, wavy hair, quite short on top but unkept, and long sideburns. He was thought to have been wearing a fawn-coloured jacket and fawn trousers of a lighter shade. This man was seen in Short Wickham, the alley behind K. O'Connor's home, at around 2.45pm on the afternoon of the murder. The other man, the one in the photo fit, was described as being between 30 and 40 years old, well-built and about 5 feet 8 inches tall. He had gingery hair with long sideburns which appeared lighter than the rest of his hair. He had a weather-beaten complexion and gave the impression of being an outside worker. He was seen walking down Butt Road at about 3.45pm on the afternoon of the murder. I want to read for you now excerpts from an article, The Hunt for a Murderer, published on Thursday, March the 14th, 1974, in the Colchester Express. The dartboard was firmly shut away behind closed cupboard doors. No time for darts now in Colchester Police Station's recreation room. The name of this game, for 12 specially selected CID men, is Murder. Where PCs stop for a drink and a chat on their way home is transformed into a killer hunt nerve centre. With masterly euphemism, police call it an incident room. Here, the shirt-sleeved detectives work 16-hour days sifting through hundreds of statements, notes, anything that can help trace the murderer. On the walls are blackboards mapping out the hunt like a military campaign. Visiting reporters were warned, what is on that blackboard is confidential. In charge is Detective Inspector Cliff Stollery. A reporter asked, what goes on here? Inspector Stollery laughed. I haven't got three hours to explain, he replied. On the first day we realised that this would be a protracted inquiry. These men here are experts to carry out the job. Each has been specially trained at our special investigation office. Inspector Stollery could not conceal his pride in the formidable crime-busting team. He examines every shred of information that passes through his detective's hands. With 50 CID men scouring the town for clues, every call from the public is followed up. The incident room's function is to collate information, information that makes a nightmare jigsaw puzzle. The detectives must fit the puzzle together. In the week following Kay's murder, police dealt with 218 statements, 156 calls from the public, and 522 inquiries from the investigating team. They also provided 2,000 questionnaires to be filled in by all the soldiers stationed in Colchester. The questionnaires asked each soldier if he knew Kay O'Connor, if he'd seen her, if he knew anyone who knew her, if he knew anyone of violent disposition or anyone who had acted rather strangely since the date of the murder, and if he knew anyone who had blood on his clothes since then. The soldiers were also asked where they were on the afternoon of the murder, and for the names of people who could verify their whereabouts. I don't know for sure whether police suspected that a soldier committed the killing, but I spoke to a few people in Colchester old enough to remember when it happened. They all say similar things. Oh, it was a squaddy, wasn't it? 
Didn't they think it was someone in the army? That's what people who lived through that time and experienced the rumour mill believe. And there is much rumour surrounding the facts of Kay's life and death, but that's not for me to repeat. If you want to read speculation into the case, then I suggest you check out Chris Clark's book, Yorkshire Ripper, The Secret Murders, which dedicates a couple of pages to similarities between Kay's murder and crimes committed by serial killer Peter Sutcliffe. He gets names and facts wrong sometimes, and twists little pieces to fit his theory. But it's as good as anything, because this is where the episode ends, in theory and speculation. The truth is that, 44 years on from the murder, we still have nothing concrete, only two photo fits and thousands of filed written statements. For Kay O'Connor, those who remember her, and for you, who has listened to the facts of the case, it appears as if there will be no answers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Outlines podcast. Before I go, I'd like to say thank you to all those who have rated and reviewed the show over the past month. Your support goes a long way towards helping Outlines gain exposure, and every review spurs me on to write and improve the next episode. If you haven't already, but you want to contact me, I can be found at at Outlines Podcast on Twitter, by searching for The Outlines Podcast on Facebook, or emailing theoutlinespodcast at gmail.com. I've just set up a website as well, and you can find that at theoutlinespodcast.wordpress.com. And there you can find links, photographs and videos relating to all the cases I have covered so far. This podcast was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy. Thank you.